0: This is a show that brings to the forefront newsmakers, entertainers, and those making a difference in our lives and in our world. Each week is a new adventure with topics ranging from the most serious and cutting edge to the most lighthearted and entertaining. This is Taking Care of Business with Richard Solomon. Everyone, Richard Solomon from My Father's Place Radio. That is the music of Kerry Carney, and he's in studio with us today. So, this is so just get a little bit more of a taste of this incredible music.
1: Grandma to have them, grandpa seems to have them too. Look down in the corner, the old dog had them weary blues. But I know what I'm not right now, I've got them sketchbooks.
0: that was awesome tell us first of all Kerry carney a uh, master blues
2: musician mm-hmm. um that was from what album and from the smokehouse shornade the new one. actually it's, it's been out about a year or so a little more and uh, we did really good on radio we made number one actually on blues radio last april so, I, uh, and that was Statesboro Blues. Blues. That's an old um, Blind Willie Tell song that the Ombro's made very famous. But uh, I, I kind of kept my own little version of it, so. That was it
0: Now, I have to say, first of all, thank you, because you did something really incredible last year. Well, earlier this year, which was you performed at my father's place for the United States Navy's oh, yeah. USS Tornado oh. crew. They were stationed over as part of Fleet Week at King's Point mm-hmm. and we had part of the crew come over. I guess some people had to stay and guard the ship. <laughs> 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 and you put on a rockin' performance. Mm. And it was just it was just the the crew was so appreciative um, I think, and then we had a lot of people who are either alumni from King's Point. We had some veterans in the audience. It was really, really cool. Um, how many people we had there and, and just the raw enthusiasm for, thank you for doing that. It was just a wonderful, Oh yeah, our,
2: our pleasure. It was great. You and know, anything for the, uh, for the boys. Yeah. yeah, and Boys and girls. That's true. That's, that's true. Right, do
0: that. You know, and yeah. we had some great interviews with uh, the whole crew and we, one of the cool things that we did is <clears> we had a veteran who's about 90 years old, who is, uh, in a ship, during the forty-eight to fifty-one time frame, mm. not too dissimilar to the kind of ship that they were on today, and they're all comparing notes. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> that ship life then and now, yeah. and it's pretty much you know it's, it's evolved, but you can see that you know a lot of it's the same. So, so okay, so you played a lot of that music at my father's place. Yes, it was just a great performance. So, tell us a little bit about the album, and and what you're working on kind of now. You know, because I understand there's some like a, a little a project coming up. There was, there was, yeah, for Christmas time. Yeah, right. There, yeah. All right so let's talk about that album because you, because you, you kind of just kind of <laughs> finessed how well received it was, and this show is all about shameless promotion. <laughs> <laughs> so let's, so let's hear a little bit about some of the songs. Um, some of the influences. You, know, you said that the song that we played, which was track number three, was an Allman Brothers song, stage players Blues." with your yeah. own.
2: What, what else is on there? You know there? what it is? It, it was written by um, Blind Willie McTell. Blind Willie McTell put out some stuff in the, the late 20s, right? When he was rediscovered, there was a rediscovery back in the early 60s, okay? And um, one guy's name is Harry Smith. He put out a uh, an album. In Greenwich Village, they they did this thing. They compiled all these really great tunes from like way back when. And when it came out, that's what started the whole new blues boom and folk boom and all that stuff around that time. That turned into the '60s. So in like you know the whole Bleecker Street sound. So what happened was um, when that came out, he had passed away a couple of years prior in '58. Blind Willie Tell. So he never saw the resurgence and the, the 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 recamping of everything that was going on from the '20s, which a lot of guys did, like Mississippi John Hurt. Um, there's a lot of these old, old great players that kind of came into the, uh, the, the, um, the folk fest of um, Newport. We came out like that, but when one of the find him, they found that he was he was already dead. So there's a couple of tunes they had from him that was really great, and one was Statesboro Blues, and Taj Mahal did it actually in '68, a couple of years prior to the Allman Brothers. He did that tune. Just it, it sounds pretty much like it the same type of rips and all like that. The old Brothers took it they it went through the roof pretty much for what they did. So um, what I try to do is if I, if I take a, a song like that a classic tune I try to make it our own our own feel. And that song has like a little bit of Louisiana feel which I love the Louisiana sound. Oh, I was Orleans, you know, I was Louisiana. ready to pull out a, a little gumbo from under the table. <laughs> 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 yeah, Eat it up I'm ready. But um <laughs> but yeah but uh, a little of that. So I, what I try to do with each tune, I find that. A lot of albums can be, a lot of blues can be kind of the same thing. I'm not saying it's boring because so I love all blues music, but it could be a little monotonous after a while. You have like 20, Some people have like 20 tunes on an album. It's amazing. And, um, well, I'm sure it's in albums. We'll see these. And it could be all like the same type of thing, the same kind of shuffle or the same kind of like slow blues. Each one of our songs, I try to do a little bit of the gamut of everything, whether it's New Orleans, whether it's Texas, whether it's, uh, you know, the Delta, whether it's Chicago, type thing like that. So each one is its own little thing. So it keeps you kind of not not too boring. You can go around the house and clean your house with it. It's great. <laughs> you know, as a coaster if you want. But it's one thing you just put on, let it let it rip, and that, that's what I, I try to do like that. So it makes it more interesting. It makes it interesting for me too because I get to play all those kind of styles, which is great, and it gives everybody like my um, piano player David Benet Cohen. He's a really great um, uh, what would you say like barrel house type piano player. It gives him you know time to like stretch out, which is great. And he was with George Jones and the Fisher. He is. Back then, right. he was one of the original guy.
0: yeah. While we're on the subject, because we never, we never scripted here, tell, tell me about your current band and who's in it and who's played. Because when you played at my father's place, you had this really great mu- musicians uh, on stage with you, and I thought they were just all stellar.
2: With, with a show like that, I'm able to get all the plays I'm looking for, pretty much. In my father's place, of course, it was great. Um, the Great South Bay, I do that, too, at the same time. I try to make it into a show where people are kind of hanging out. They come to see, like, a whole thing. My... Um, usual, the usual would say, My usual suspect <laughs> will be only the three of us. I do like a trio. Okay, I also have a, a really great conga player, Nidia Miata, which is really fantastic. And it turns into this little bit of like a, like a like a Cuban Afro-Cuban blues thing, which is really great. At the same time, I have a planet too. So I mean, that's that's pretty much the four of us. It's like it's, it's Nidia on conga, uh, Mario Stano, really really great great drummer, and uh, Jerry Sarentino on bass. And those two guys were with uh, um, Subway Brown for years. They were their, their backup band. And so I have a really, really unbelievable. To me, I always say to myself, well, "What do you sound so good?" I'm like, "Well, I got a great backup band." I mean, to me, it's like you know, without a band like that, it's it's you know, you could be it's funny you could be like a not a virtuoso guitar player if you have a great backup band. It does make a difference what you're doing because it's just it's just great. You know what I mean? And if you, if you are a virtuoso and the band behind you is not that really kicking, it, you can really feel it. It's not, but that's the real meat and potatoes of everything. It's a Great drummer and a great bass player, and those guys are great. So who do you who do you like
0: to go like if you could just put on a pair of sunglasses and go in stealth mode and go out there, who would you like to actually see as an audience member and as, as a fan right now who's out there, you know?
2: You know, there's there's a lot of people. Um, it's funny, I, I the other night I played with um, with John Hammond. Oh, wow. And I'll be an audience member, like, you know, watching that. But I, got, I, I actually got a chance to play with him, actually on the same stage, which is great. Him and the, um, and um, um, Guy Davis, thank you. I remember his name. But Guy Davis actually is the son of Ruby Dee and Davis, the, the actors. And uh, he's a really, really great Robert Johnson type guy. And what we did was we did a Robert Johnson show. And it was it was myself, got him Rob Europe. He's an up-and-coming guy from the island. Um, guy Davis and um, and John Hammond. And I thought it was it, was, it was fantastic. It was great. It was out at the Suffolk Theater. It was amazing. But it was, it was a Robert Johnson night. And it was fun. I like that kind of stuff. I like watching Delta like that. Delta Blues is really, really a lot of fun. And I'm going to go, pretty soon, I'm going to go to, um, actually, i got to talk to Epi about doing this sometime. I'm going to a, uh, a Django Reinhardt uh, okay. show. And it's a, uh, Django was a, a player from way back in the, uh, in, actually in France, he was a gypsy, who only used two fingers because he got it burnt off. The rest of his hand was burnt in a, in a fire. Oh, in wow. Django. So he only plays with two fingers, and he's just, he plays better with guys with all the fingers, you know what I'm <laughs> saying, at the same time. But he passed away in 53, and uh, it's Gypsy Jazz. And I like doing that. I like watching that stuff. That's amazing. You know what I mean? I like cause I a lot of ways too. I don't mind. So I have a really really bad allergy. It's killing me. I think I'm doing some kind of like drug or something like that. It's killing me. Have a, a little that. have a little water. Yeah, that, that's yeah. But anyway, but um, so, but watching that's great. And I love, and it's not something that I do. It's it takes a lifetime to learn that kind of music, and to me, it's like watching something. I, I just don't really. I understand it, but I can't really do it. So to me, that's, that's great watching that like that. If I'm saying wow, that's really cool. You know. So
0: <laughs> now, do you have like an amazing? Record
2: collection, you know, in all the formats. You know, you know, I did it one time. It's funny. It's funny to say that because for a while, in my, in my actually CD player, I had the greatest hits of, of um, Desi S. Wow, and it was all because he, he was actually he
0: was actually really good. People realized that he was really really good at what he did.
2: And the recordings were, were pre I Love Lucy. And what they did was I think it was CBS or so somebody gave him the opportunity to go out in the late '40s to go around the country as this team. So it was it was, it was Lucy and Desi, and they were doing stuff, and she did all the little. And in the show, you see their little skits, is a lot of singing stuff is from that show they did, and that, that's what started the whole thing to get out there and do it. So they wanted to see what the reaction of the, of the public was, and that's what it was. And I had that on because it was like something. Radio was like you know kind of down on me a little bit with stuff. I wasn't really into it too much. Trying to find something on the radio even late at night, I can't find stuff. Even on like a public radio, I can't find anything sometimes. Although now it's different, but uh, it's getting back into that little realm. But for a while there, it was not that good. So. I listen to that. I have that in my thing. Django, Ron I thought I was saying about Django. Uh, some really obscure blue stuff, and uh, maybe some classical stuff. But uh, things that I, I don't really normally do, I like doing that like that.
0: So, so where do you go record shopping now? Now that the classic, eBay. okay, because the classic places that all of us used to go to, right. uh, you know, when we would travel and go to like New Orleans or right, Chicago, right, whatever you right. go. You know, I remember going to the Caribbean, and I literally walked into a store and I said, "Who, who are the best?" Local artists, oh. and they they thought we were like feds or something, you know. And I said, no, no, I, I collect music. Just who's really good. So when they realized that we were really just music fans, but I I went to Spain and I was like, like who's the Madonna of Spain, you know? And I and I would just collect music, but. It, it, you can't really get that. There's really no in our music world. there's no tower records, there's no Sam the record man like there was in Toronto. Right. and then of course, our friends at WLIR used to get everything from overseas and shipped you know to the states way before they uh, hit our shores. But where do you where aside from eBay, where else did you did, where did you go now? Where did you go when those outlets were available?
2: Well, I used to go well, Sam Goody, of course back then. There was a place called Titus Oaks who was on um, it was on Avenue U. And uh, Ocean Avenue in in, um, in Brooklyn. And they they had a really, really big selection out there. It was unbelievable. It was kind of like Bleak of Bob's type thing, but cheaper like that. So I'm saying about eBay now, it's amazing. So I'll go on, I'll find an obscure album or CD from like, you know, way back when, even vinyl. And it's like five bucks in free shipping. I mean, you, you can't beat it. It's great. <laughs> and, and I'm one of those people, I have a flip phone. If, if, if I had a rotary dial on it, I'd love it even better, you know what I mean? <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm, I'm still a CD guy. I'll pop them in. I have a five change or whatever. And... Um, I'll just put them in and just let, let it let it go. And a lot of them like they're remastered, they really sound great. You know what I mean? I got it's unbelievable. It was Stones um the first sixteen albums, and it was with Brian Jones, up to like sixty-eight. It's a little box set, right? I sold it on there for like, like hundred bucks, two hundred bucks. I got it for fifteen bucks from China on what? eBay with, with no no shipping. I mean, it was unbelievable. It was fantastic. I mean, it's great. And that stuff like that. Like you would always find stuff. It's it's amazing. And like I said, I'll, I'll just keep doing CDs as long as I can, you know, I like it. I mean, now, now between cassettes, eight tracks, seventy-eights,
0: thirty-three vinyls, and, and other four what's what's your famous favorite format? Because I've talked to a lot of different artists, and some people actually said that they just really miss vinyl because it was warmer. It had you know, aside from the fact that it was tactile, right, right, and you saw, you know, pictures and lyrics, and you were able to touch it, and so, so there was something romantic about the the the, the, the hisses and the pops right, in right. it. What what? Where do you like to listen to? You and if it was an album that
2: opened up, you'd always find seeds. You know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> from somebody. But anyway, um, it's a family but, show, they, they, <laughs> and it's almost legal. But uh, but it's funny. Um, I used to, um, I, I do love vinyl. About vinyl, what's great about it is that it's vibrational, so when you hear the drums and the bass, it's the warmth of it, too, the analog warmth. That's amazing. And when I when I record digitally, we recorded, recorded Smokehouse, the last album digitally, of course. I've done it for a bunch of years. And they have some stuff in, they have some, like, some apps in the studio that actually makes it analog again. So what you're doing is, even though you're doing digital, you're screwing it up into the analog, which you're trying to get away from in the first place. But you want that sound, though, because there's little, like, rounded areas. And when you're finger-picking guitar or whatever or doing something, that sounds a little too stale, a little too something going on, a little metal something like that. So what it'll do, it'll round those off so you get the tape sound. In other words, I love that like that. And that's where the analog comes in. I mean, tape, I used to have a reel-to-reel when I was younger.
0: I remember reel to reel, And that sounded oh, yeah. great,
2: too. Fantastic. Yeah. Now, do you
0: remember 8-track tapes when... In the middle of the song, it would go... Oh, yeah, to the next one. Click. <laughs> yeah, was, yeah.
2: <laughs> I remember having a 45 of um, of um, American Pie. You have to, you have to, it was so long, And turn it over. In the middle wow. of the song, it, it, would, yeah. it, would, go, it would, they would fade it. Then you turn the thing over, and it was the other side, of, like that. Yeah. I'll, I'll never forget when
0: my cousin told me... I, I, one of the earlier Mm-mm. 45s that I ever purchased was Light My Fire by the Doors. Uh-huh. And then my cousin told me, she said, y- "You know, on the album, there's a longer version."
2: <laughs> That's the, yeah. yeah. You know? I have something about the doors. It's funny you said that. When I was about, I was about six or seven. I think I was probably six. It was '67, so I was born a little bit later in '67. I mean, I was born in 1960 in August. So this was like um, probably around Christmas time, I guess, in '67. My brother bought the album home. I remember laying in bed and hearing "Light My Fire" like three thousand times, and I couldn't stand the doors after that. Wow. I mean, I, I like the Doors. I, I did, you know, eventually get into them. But it's like I remember hearing I was like, that's about the sound of the organ just like kill me. You know what I mean? And I'll tell you what. About 20 years ago, I was walking through the village, right? The bottom line was still open. Great bottom line. And uh, a guy walked up to me. He says, listen, I have two tickets for, uh, you know, Ray Manzarek tonight. If you want to come and see him. It's for the second show. So I wasn't doing on A friend of mine was with me. So I said, sounds great. So we'll go in. So we, we played the bottom line back then, actually. So I, I knew, you know, I, I knew all the guys that Doug like Stanley and everybody. And uh, so I walked in and I'm like, okay, what's going on? So, so I said, I took tickets from this guy. Come on, I'll sit over here. So we sat us down. And uh, Ray Manzeri came out by himself and he played. He didn't sing. He started playing the tunes. He, he'd say a little thing. Well, me and Jim, we were on the beach <laughs> and this came out of the song. And so he started playing the tune and the whole audience sang. It was the most unbelievable. And that right there made me like my respect more for the for the doors again. But he was doing the stuff and it was such a great, great show. I remember singing with everybody. It was really really, really amazing. It was really great. Wow. All right, this is Richard Solomon with Kerry Carney.
0: We'll be right back. Don't go anywhere. I'm Roger. I'm Tom. And I'm Vic. And we're, we're Blue Blue Race. Race And you're, and you're listening, listening to, to Richard Silent <laughs> on
1: WCWE 88.1, 88.1 FM. 88.1 F-M.
0: Richard Solomon We're with Terry Carney in the studio. Just keep it locked in. This is a great song for his album. This is track number
1: one. jelly, have your peanut butter boy, yeah she's shaking like. My-
0: solomon kerry carney in the studio and that that was a great song mm-hmm. oh so what, what what were we listening to
2: that was shaking like jelly okay and who is that a cover or is that no that's one of us oh one that's that's a great yeah the the album is it's pretty much like 90 percent our own music that, a couple that, songs just like just have a little classic
0: that, that had a great old blues feel to it
2: it was a chicago type of thing like that it was a yeah. shuffle
0: like that they call it yeah all right so before the break we were talking you t- give me this great story about you know the doors who were your influences like okay let me ask you this do you remember the first 4533 that you you remember buying with your own money uh, not a present
2: that you actually firmly went out and bought it was Hey Jude ah 45. the Beatles okay i remember i remember the day i did it i think it was like A&S's or something like that i remember my mother we would uh, I used to go to corvettes, corvettes. <laughs> bam burgers yeah, words <laughs> out, out of the best. But uh, yeah, I remember going there. I remember getting the, uh, the 45. I remember, I remember seeing it on TV. It was on- At um, Sullivan? Was it Sullivan? I think it was, or David Frost had it on. Okay. And it, they would, they, would do, they did it it's supposedly live. And the whole audience got up. Like, all of a sudden, they were around them. They were all over the Beatles at the end doing that na, 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 that part. You know what I mean? It's pretty cool. But I remember hearing the song and being like really just, really digging it. I remember seeing the Beatles on- t- I mean, I was about three when the Beatles actually came out. I was born in 60, so. I mean, I but I do remember. I, you know, it's funny, too. I tell a story a lot about this. Is that being three years old, I have nothing to gauge anything on. I don't know what was before that. So, I mean, there was Elvis, of course, and there was like Frank Sinatra, and going back, going back to, you know, um, whatever, you know, any, any, you know, um, you know, Rudy Valley, for God's sakes, you know, way back in the twenties. But it's like I had nothing to gauge the Beatles on, but I knew something was was very, very special, and that's how powerful they are. Because I had nothing to say, you know, to, to really gauge it against, like I was saying, you know what I mean? So in that, that sense, and that was my first, like, really, things that really blew me away was the Beatles, you know, a lot of ways, as a kid.
0: Now, the Beatles were influenced very much by the blues, but but where did your love oh, the blues come for the blues come from?
2: My brother had a really, really great collection. I, I'm the youngest of four of three other brothers, four guys in the family. Uh, my oldest brother—he was born in nineteen fifty. One was born in fifty three. One was born in fifty five. So in the sixties, I had I had the greatest, you know, album collection. Whatever <laughs> you want to say, but it wasn't even mine. It was theirs. And my dad was a tinkerer, so he, we had this Heath kit. It was called, and he made this big speaker. It was a mono speaker, Macintosh. Uh, receiver we had Macintosh with the tubes and stuff, and we had a turntable. And uh, he was always like you know influencing us on, on, on you know, get records, whatever. He was into like jazz and classical music. But my brothers were out as soon as something came out brand new, they would they would have had it like that, you know what I mean? So we had like hundreds and hundreds of albums of everything you could think of, and a lot of it was was blues, it was uh, it was surf music, it was folk music, my brother liked doo wop music, everything, every, every, every brother's everything like that. It was amazing. And I remember one time, I was my brother, I was at the cream a lot. I'm listening to Cream, and my brother came in one day, I was listening to Laylor album actually, and he came in, he said, hold on a second, let me do this for you. So he took the album off and put BB King, Live with the Regal on, it's a live album from 64. And uh, he put it on, I was like, wow, it sounds like Eric, and he goes, no, 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 Eric sounds like him. So what I did was from that day, I went back and listened to what Eric Clapton and Jimmy Page, what their influences were, and the Allman Brothers, what, what did they listen to? So I found out, so instead of me getting the education from them, I got the education of what they listened to, so I got straight across, and I found myself being a better player because of it. I understood like where it was. A lot of guys want to play fast and want to play this or that, but there's a mood there, and that mood is from like you know Robert Johnson and Mississippi John Hurt, like I was saying, and Elmore James and all these guys. BB King, of course, you know. What I mean, B. B. King with, I, I, I could tell if you say like I can name that tune in one note, I could hear that one note, and I can tell you it's BB King. That's how like in, that's how individual that man is. Amazing how he was, and I got to play with him three times. In our, in, our, in our career. Okay. Yeah. Please, elaborate. You gotta hear. I got a phone call from, um, it was right after the, the hurricane, actually came Sandy, and I was like pretty much devastated where I was, and then Breezy Point. I got a phone call, you know, we have an opener at the uh Westboro Music Fair with B.B. King, would you like to play it? Like, why well, you even ask me if I want to play it for you? <laughs> I, mean, I, like, I was like stunned, I was like dumbfounded, I was like, oh my God. And so we went there, and um, it, was, it was amazing because he was sick at the time. He was in a wheelchair. He was. He was. He was still okay. He still play a bit. He was hanging in. He was hanging in, definitely. And so, I was. I was backstage. We did a little sound check. Unbelievable. It was in the round. There was like three thousand people. Sold out the whole thing. And uh, so, I'm, I'm, we're back. We're having dinner and stuff. And I see a couple of guys walk off to his bus. His, his like, his almost like his mafia guys. His men. You know what I mean? These proud African American guys in these beautiful suits. That, you know, taking care of the king. You know what I mean? So you walk off the bus, they're walking, and I, off walks on a little stand and the guitar. He's got it like, a, like a holy sepulcher, like walking down the aisle of like a church, like the Pope, and he's walking down with it. And I'm looking at him like, oh my God, that's it. And so he walked by me. I didn't get a chance to say hello to him. I felt a little bit, I didn't want to get in his way, you know what I mean? So he walked by and there was the king, there was him. So we did our, did our set. Like I said, it was by the second song, it was completely full. And uh, we did a really, really unbelievable set. It was great. It was fantastic. We saw so many CDs that night. People saying, who are these guys? Blah, blah, blah. And a lot of friends came down and stuff too. And then when he played, he gave us kudos. He said, "He said, how about Gary Carney? What do you think about him? Blah, 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 and all that stuff. So it was great. So after the show, I, I, I said to myself, I, I really feel, you know, I have a lot of respect for him and blah, blah, blah. I've always had it. I'm glad I didn't, you know, I didn't like, you know, say hello to him. I'm mean, a little sick. So the next day I'm gone to Facebook and my drummer, has a picture of him sitting in his lap. You know, what I mean, he's like, he, goes, he said, oh, "I knew the band." I'm like, "Oh, my, I can even say hello to the guy." You know, I mean, here you are, like, you know, hanging out with BB. You know, it was great though, but it, it was just, it was amazing. We did the Great South Bay with him. I also did the Paramount with him, which is fantastic. That was really, really great too. You know, what I mean, but the Great South Bay—that's when he was really. It was probably a few months before he passed, and that wow. was it. You know, what I mean, he was really—it was—it was awful that night. Actually, that's how bad it was. But, uh, but you know, it's funny. It's like like Bob Dylan. I saw Bob Dylan twice in my life. Uh, and I, I, the first time I saw him, this is going 30-something years ago, I left. I mean, listen, I love Bob Dylan. I think he's great. But I just, something about it, it just didn't really get to me. It was freezing at the, at Jones Beach. Uh, Santana opened. I and mean, everybody's like, you know, jumping around like a bunch of, you know, screwballs. But all of a sudden, Bob Dylan came out, and it was like, he did a 10-minute, like, solo song. I was like, oh, God. You know, when it was freezing. So, anyway... But you're seeing like an icon. You're seeing something. That's what you're paying tickets for. And to this day, you're still doing it. Yeah. And I, But just 35 years ago, I left. The, I can't imagine today. The Endless
0: Tour. I think it's called like the, the yeah, Never Ending Tour. It's unbelievable. So who else have you seen? Did um, you ever see like
2: uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan or Muddy Waters? I never saw I never saw them. I saw, let me think, two. much. Really, really great. I'll tell you what. I'll tell you two people I saw that you probably have, never even heard of that blew me away. I mean, I saw Clapton about 90 times. I seen all, you know. I I went to his Crossroads Festival, so everybody that was playing on that thing. But there was a guy. I was it was um it was back in around 78, 79, There was a place called Rockaways, kind of like my father's place on Rockaway Beach, right? So my office is in Lawrence,
0: so I know I know the area well, right? Yeah.
2: And, and now it's a um it's a it's a it's a uh, Dunkin' Donuts now actually. This building that was there. So anyway, so friend of mine, I we had nothing to do one night. So like on a Wednesday night, we're in school, we're hanging out. So a uh, school night. We said, listen, Robert Gordon's playing things. It was like Rockabilly stuff, right? And I don't know Robert Gordon's playing it. My father's playing some.
0: Yes, and he has played already. already. Yes, yes. Yes.
2: yes. So I went down, and um, maybe 25 people showed up. It was like the middle of the week. It was probably raining. So I'm standing there watching the stage. I'm like really, really close. And in about the third, maybe second or third song, the guitar player, was my, my jaw was hitting the ground. I couldn't believe what I was watching. You know what I mean? Because I never saw anything like it before in my life. And he played exactly the way I wanted to play watching this guy play. And I was like, I was a young teenager. And the guy next to me looked at me and he came over with me. I didn't know who the guy was. And he goes, Is this guy like the best guitar player you have ever seen? Like what are we watching? I was like, I was like, yeah, this is unbelievable. And his name was Danny Gatton, his name was. And Danny Gatton did play at my father's place and stuff. And it was amazing. And the sad thing about him is that he uh, he had taken his life like wow. a long time, about 30 years ago. And um it was an eye opener. I swear to God. I went home, I put I plugged my guitar in, I didn't I didn't get out of the room for a week. I was so influenced by it. I was so blown away by it.
0: What was it about his style that really brought something out in you? You know what it was?
2: It was like watching like Scotty Moore from Elvis Presley or one of those guys like on like some kind of really heavy duty acid or something. Like something you would just Mm -hmm. like, I mean, I mean, inspired by it. I I shouldn't say drugs inspire you, but it was like this. Deep. He took it to another realm and he played old instruments. He played an old telecast of people that don't understand guitars out there. He played an old amp. And he just everything his tone the way he played everything he was just just really amazing to watch it close up and nobody knew about it and then about a month later on the cover of Guitar Player magazine to me that was a bible I'd read that I'd, I'd go out and I'd buy records of people I'd read about now you know what I mean on the front page was um, the Phantom friend, friend, friend of the Opera mask of the sky behind it, it said the world's most unknown guitar player and it was him hmm. it was Danny Gatton yeah fantastic yeah. he played um. Uh, what was it, uh place in the city, Lone Star, ca- Lone Star Cafe, he played a lot, all his place. he played all the time. But he was always, but it was one of those guys that people kind of knew, a lot of musicians, he was a musician, he was like the... Um, he was a guitarist, guitarist? He was a, big time, yeah, yeah, he was like that, yeah. And a lot of guys like, like Hot 2 and all, like, all those guys, he was in that kind of realm of what was going on, that kind of like phase of what, what's happening. But and the funny thing is what his day job was, he, uh, he fixed old cars. He like souped them up or something like that. <laughs> in Maryland, that's where he lived, you know? And uh, it was one of those things, it was so sad when he, and I, what, the funny thing is I told friends of mine I couldn't stop talking about him for months and months and months. And he played there again. I said, we gotta go see him, we gotta go. I must have brought 100 people with me. And he had a different guitar player with him that night. He didn't have Danny Gatton. And I was like, oh my God, I feel so bad. But, um, but that was it. And there was one other person I saw one time. Yeah, so
0: who's the second person? That- the second
2: guy was a, um, a folk guitar player. And I had an album by him, his name was Tom Paley. He was with the uh, the New City Ramblers that they were called. They were like this folk from like the late 50s, in that whole Dylan thing, that whole resurgence, right? And um, I, was, I, was, I used to live in California, and I was doing laundry in the laundromat, and I saw this little little flyer at the Lagunita school, like like day school, was, he's gonna play. And he, he must have been in like this little little room he's gonna play in. And I, so I told my friend I was at the time, I said, we gotta go see him. It was like during a week again, we went out there. And he came out, and he's kind of sitting around. He's drinking a cup of coffee, waiting for people to come in. Maybe 25 people showed up for the little, little five bucks to get in, whatever. And he sat there, like, this far away. And he just played, and it was just, it wasn't like he was doing, like, virtuosity. It was just so great. It was just so, I, could, I can't even, I can't really explain it, how good it was. Something hits you, you see it, and you're like, oh, my God, it's amazing. But it wasn't like he was, he was just playing and singing. And I just, I, I didn't play my, again, I played my guitar for a week. Just watching that strumming guitar it was unbelievable. You
0: know. So, so who who else had that kind of impact on you, where you had sort of a Revolution. pivot, a pivot, right, right? Where all of a sudden it's like, you know, in, in many ways you had like a master class in front of you, and then you decided to do a little self study, right? What other moments in your life were like that, where there was something that you saw and you pivoted? So obviously we had the the Beatles was like an
2: aha moment,
0: right, right, and then these two great guitar. Moments, like unknowns, in a yeah. lot of
2: ways. Yeah, that's as you get. Well, definitely, Eric Clapton, definitely Cream. My brother was big into that stuff. Like I said, we had the greatest, you know, collection around. <clears throat> and me as a little kid, it was like you know when they used to go out of the house, I, I'd be like sneaking things in there. listening to the Grateful Dead and everything else that he had. So, I put on, um, you know, I, I put on Cream, and on, you know, on Wheels of Fire, obviously the, uh, you know, Crossroads. And what's funny is that song's about three minutes long because it's made for radio. And you can hear it, there was little edits in it at the end, all of a sudden he's he's playing and all of a sudden it, sh- it shuts till we start singing again. And the whole thing like changes right there on the recording. Supposedly there's eleven stanzas of guitar solos on some cutting room floor of that song. We gotta we gotta make some calls. <laughs> Let me tell you something. For, for, for this day, it has to be it's like finding the holy grail or something like that somewhere. It's, it's fine, yeah. you know, King Solomon's minds. It's like it just it's there, but it's it's almost like it's it's folklore, you know what I mean?
0: I remember when I was uh, going to the State University of New York at Binghamton, ah, and one of the whole. Wait, hold on. Yeah,
2: who's famous from Binghamton? The famous man from Binghamton.
0: Well, the Grateful Dead played in nineteen seventy.
2: No, but who was the famous guy who came out of there? Who um, was born there.
0: Let's see, uh, Paul Reiser. Uh, was, uh, he did. He he ended up doing you know Mad About right. You. He was kind of famous. I mean well, Rod Serling. Well, no, he went, He didn't go to Binghamton University, but he came from Binghamton. Yes, yeah. yeah. In fact, I and the think the Corning,
2: corning Ware, I think, is from that too. I think. I think, corning, I yeah. think
0: Rod Serling High School is in Binghamton. because oh, okay, okay. I think they named the high school after him. Because when I hear about yeah. that, I think
2: about that. And that's, yeah, that's
0: him, yeah. So one of the guys in in, the, in my corridor had um, Derek of the Dominoes in concert, and I was like, Oh, oh my god! Live album, yeah. I'm like, it, that was like, it was one of those things you just couldn't find anywhere. Yeah. And I remember uh, this guy; I think his name was Ed. He he's he like, oh, you you really want it? He, I bought it for like eight bucks, but like it was like the greatest bargain I ever had mm-hmm. in my life. It was, you know, because it was like one of those things that you just couldn't find in
2: the record stores. Yeah. you know, there's not much footage of him either. I, I would love to see those like a concert live. Like I know that they filmed um, Phil Maurice. They used to film it a lot, and were ones you can go on to find things. There's one really great one of um, of um, oh, what's his name? I'm gonna give his name now. I like that. We have Dead Air. Dan Morrison. Oh, okay. There's a great Van Morrison one, like 1970. It's amazing, actually, Now, But they have to have a film of them, Oh, I would say. And he's, there's a film of them, actually, on the, um, on, um, here we go again. I'm starting to forget things now. And what's his name? Um, Johnny Cash's show. Yes. There's a show, that, them playing like that. I, it's pretty wild. I remember that. Yeah. All
0: right. Richard Solomon, Kerry Carney. What, what is your website, by the way? It's kerrycawny.com,
2: official.com,
0: com. All right, so we'll be right back. we got a little bit more radio to go. Don't go anywhere.
1: This is Russell Hitman Alexander from the Hitman Blues Band, and you are listening to Richard Solomon on WCWP 88.1 FM. Someone's messing around There's been fishing in my pond Someone's messing around They've been fishing in my pond I'll make them go away I'll wear my magic wand Yeah, buzz, buzz, yeah Buzz me like a bee Yeah, buzz, buzz, yeah Honey, buzz me like a bee Your sting has got me ballin' You make honey just for me
0: shitsam and Kerry carney so what was that was track number two what was the name of what was the That's long long tall mama okay so when you finished producing that album and you sat down and you listened to the whole thing straight through what did you think what was your first impression of hearing all of this great collection of music
2: you know it's 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 really difficult because you're so close to it um i need like a virginia has to come in and, and listen to what's going on. I love that when I bring somebody, like even off the street, I'll take somebody, you know, out, out in the middle of the studio. I'll walk out and I'll say, listen, hey, can, do me, could you come in a second? No, you know, somebody in. And I I'd let them listen to it. And a lot of times I feel like they they kind of like, they're maybe being nice about it. So I got to be careful like how I'm taking it at the same time. But I think that, you know, if you can separate yourself from it, it's, it's, it's good. It's If I don't listen to it for a long time, it's even better. And I haven't heard this and I haven't probably played it in I don't know how long. So I do play the songs. When we're playing live, so but hearing the actual well, recording of it, I listen to it. If it doesn't bother me, then it's good. Okay. <laughs> if it bothers me, that's 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 terrible. I'll say, oh man, I should have ch- changed that. Whatever you know, what I mean. But otherwise, everything. But everything's fine. Has your music evolved?
0: Yes. And uh, it, has it evolved because you've been critical about it, or you decided that you wanted to just go in a new direction?
2: You know, what it is I? I stopped being picky about it. That's the hard thing. When you go record something, go do something, and you you have this this idea of like being a perfectionist, which I used to do all the time. But a lot of music is not perfect. A lot of like a lot of blue stuff. It can be be a little out of tune at times or this or that when they're playing. And there's something about the mood of it. I I had a friend of mine who was a classical uh, guitar player. And I, I, I played him a blues thing one time. Not that I played, but I think it was maybe some Muddy Waters. And he was, like, so appalled by it because he was like, oh, my God, this guy's terrible, blah, blah, blah. But he's not seeing the mood of it. it there's a certain mood in the music. That's so what I was saying before about learning from the people that, that Clapton listened to and this and that, and the Stones listened to. When you listen to that stuff, you're getting the education they're getting understanding what it is. And a lot of music that you listen to, it's it's really not polished. It's what it is. And I tried going through this one especially by not having it polished, by just letting it rip like that, and you know we, we, we rehearsed it before, and I played a lot of stuff live prior to that, so we went in. It wasn't like just going in blind with it, you know what I mean. So that that, that helps when you're, you're you know paying for a studio, whatever it is. We had somebody take care of it actually, so it was a little different. But um, but I mean, at, hourly, it's like you know when you're in there, you got to work. It's not like sitting at home making record, you know, <laughs> in your bedroom. It's like every second it goes down all of a sudden. Boom! This, you know, it's on the clock. So you got to do it like that. So, but I, but I find that doing something... I find also, if I do one take of something, it's fresh. And I feel like... And I like it when I am listening back to it. That's fine. Get rid of it. Leave it on there. If I started doing, like, a bunch of takes, I'd be there for, like, three days just trying to get the right guitar sound. And it'll sound like just like the first time I did it. You know what I mean? There's a story about Glenn Frey and um, with, with the line, City Girls, I seem to find that early, from um, The Eagles, and um, Lying Eyes. It took him three months to get that one line. Wow. Three months. Did
0: did you ever read the biographies of any of the blues musicians? Oh, yeah. That you really cherished as being influences to you?
2: You know... They all have a similar story. They're all like in the same kind of boat. It's always like, you know, about the poverty, about this and that, about where they came from, where they're playing, which is amazing. They play like in these grocery stores back then. They move everything out of the way, all the, all the aisles out of the way, and that was their juke joint. Like there was no real bar for them back then. You know, a lot of them, bigger, city, bigger cities, had stuff like that. But when you're rural with some of the stuff, like when you had Sun House and you had like Robert Johnson, I mean, they would just move stuff out of the way and that was your juke joint, you know what I mean? So there was a guy, his name is Peter Jarrell, I'm not going to think his name is up. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. But he wrote a, a, a book about Robert Johnson. And it was just amazing because he was in college, when he was in college, actually. This is back in like 1961 or something like that. He heard, for the first time ever, he heard Robert Johnson play Hell Hell on My Trail. And it's it's a song that's really, and if you look back at the history of it, Robert Johnson did two recordings, two places he recorded. One was in Texas and one I think might have been New York. I'm not, not sure exactly. But he did like maybe about 10 songs in one place and like 15 songs somewhere else you know what i mean and a couple of them, there, there's there's two takes of a couple of songs they have on some of the the, the later albums they have that but the one song called hell hell on my trail it's only one take of it and the way he he described it was like he could see Robert Johnson playing this song and all of a sudden like you know all of a sudden he evaporates into a a puff of like purple smoke and leaves the earth like the way he he said it it was amazing because that song is so it's so eerie and it's so whatever. And the whole folklore is that he sold his soul to the devil. And hellhound on My Trail is a part of that whole thing. I Me and the devil blues. It's all in there. You know what I mean? And the crossroads. Suppose you go to the crossroads and you go there at night, midnight and you hand your, your guitar to this guy named Legba. And he tunes it for you and he gives it back to you. And in, in exchange, he takes your soul. That's what it was. And there's another guy, too. It was... Um, Another Johnson, too, besides Robert Johnson, had the same moniker of that whole thing. Although Robert Johnson is, takes on the whole the fame of it. You know what I mean? And the funny thing, he's, he's, he was 27 when he died. He was young, yeah. He was the 27, but so was, uh, you know, so was Brian Jones, so was Jimi Hendrix. Jim, so Mar- was, I think Jimi Jim was. Janis so Joplin, yeah. A lot of people were. Even, even Kurt Cobain. Yeah. I mean, and these people, like, they're, they're really, I mean, Kurt Cobain was like the father of that music. You know what I mean? Grunge, of, yeah. And a lot of these people are so big in there. In their their fields of what they did, of the abuse they were doing, you know what I mean, that it's that he basically is the father of rock and roll, if you ask me, and that happened to him. So for him to become famous, I mean, he's a you know, it's it's amazing. One thing about Robert Johnson, also, if you're a fisherman, it's it's kind of a weird analogy. but I call him the stripe s of blues. But if you if you if you're a fisherman and you get a book about fishing, you go through with this blue fish a this is a paragraph, there's a porgy is a paragraph, stripe s there's three pages and no answers because they're so mysterious. Huh. Robert Johnson, you get a you get book about the blues? Muddy Waters is a page. You know, B.B. King, there's a big thing about him. There's 10 pages of Robert Johnson and no answer. It's amazing. Can
0: you be a blues musician without having grown up with hardship?
2: Um, it's a very good question. I think that... Um, I think there's different ways of taking it. You can take it as a musician and listen to the music. And then there are people that have, a good example actually is um, is Van Morrison, okay? His first album, it was Astral Weeks. And he, I think he was 20 years old. And on the album, he had a big fight with the band. And they ended up putting instruments on the next day. And they recorded like four hours, you know what I mean? The whole thing is amazing. And he's, being 20 years old, he sounds like a, like an old blues guy. I, what he must have lived. He was from, he was from, uh, he was from Canada, and that yeah. stuff. He was from, yeah. And from Ireland and, and he, and he just, you know what I mean? The whole thing is you could see that in his music. You could feel that in his music, but then there are people like Eric Clapton who, he wears a $3,000 Armani suit and he's got a, he got a Martin guitar that I wouldn't be able ever be able to afford if I even sold the house. You know what I mean? And he's playing blues. So it depends on the way you look at it. You know what I mean? I, I think being growing up the way I grew up, I grew up in a, like a, I don't know, let's say middle class, maybe lower middle class Irish family, and German family would have it back in you know Catholic whatever, you know in school with all my friends and blah, blah blah. We didn't really have much, you know. What I mean, I don't know if that that does it where I'm sitting there trying to think to myself, am I having hardship? It's not really hardship, but what these people probably had. You
0: know what I mean? Where do you reach inside you to get that blues feeling? Where does that come from? Where uh, do you what do you draw upon? I'll tell
2: you what. I'll, I'll show you. Okay, all right, but uh, it's our last segment right now. Yeah, yeah. Well, but the
0: the is to this we can always do yeah, more well, more well, tape. Well, <laughs> well. This thing's called bonus features.
2: <laughs> there's ways of doing things well, I'll, I'll show you
0: real quick. All right, cool. See, this this is the magic of both um, uh, radio and television. So here we go. And if you notice, there's no auto tune. <laughs>
2: pretty much in tune. This is a, um, what I'll do is I'll just do like an improvisation. Yeah, bring,
0: bring the mic just really close because oh. I want to really get good sound of this. Okay. Right.
2: Actually, what I can, do, I can do this. I can probably do like this. Yeah. Okay. What I'll do is uh It's just a, a bravo improv thing. <laughs> you know what I mean, and where I'm where I'm digging into or where I'm I'm looking for, I really don't even know. But I I could just feel the notes, I feel what's going on. I could go I could go like this, you know, like, like I can go like or go like this. It's a voice coming out like that. I can either do it mechanically or not mechanically. So when you write music, tell me about your
0: your writing process. Is it something that percolates in your head and then you write it down? Or, or is it something that you just keep playing and you record? Or
2: do you run around with like an iPad or a phone or blank paper? That, that's, a, that's a great question, actually. Um, everybody's, you know, I'm not, I'm not a prolific songwriter. I'm not like that. I'm not like a, like a Bob Dylan type guy who probably wakes up and he writes songs, you know what I mean? I mean, he probably did it one time, obviously. And remembers like, you know, 10 stanzas of a song, verses, you know what I mean? But what I'll do is I'll be riding along in my car and I'll just be humming something. And I'll have music first because it's hard to put words to music. I don't know how Elton John did it. I'm, I'm sure maybe because Bernie Taupin, he must have gave him maybe a melody and then Bernie maybe, you know, kind of put the words in, I'm not sure. Or he gave it to him and he did it. Because when you have a meter of, of music Paul McCartney, yesterday, the, the working title was Scrambled Eggs. Scrambled mm. Eggs, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And, and that's true. But Scrambled Eggs is the same syllables as yesterday. So when you have that, that's much easier. to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's easier to do it like that. You can sing anything to anything. When you make a parody of a song, you're singing the same syllables into a song. But if you have if you have words already, it's hard to put it into that thing. But I'll I'll have something like you like shaking like jelly. Like I was sitting around going, dude. Do, shaking like jelly. I started like singing it, you know what I mean? And and a lot of it's like tongue in cheek. A lot of blues music has this thing where it's it's like a uh, a double entendre at times. Uh it's it can be funny. You know what I mean? Somebody's thinking a lot of the women were like that with stuff. Pet by poodle. They'd always like crazy, crazy tunes like that. And um, but uh, you know, let the good times roll. Let the good times roll. I mean, I've made up a million blues songs just by doing it like that. You know what I mean? But I didn't make that one up. BB King does that actually. But um, but that's what I mean. Like something like that. It's like it's as easy as like a couple of words. You're singing, and that's how it is. There's no real, no real heavy formula to it. I don't think, Not in my my head anyway.
0: Do you walk around with a pad or
2: record it just because you want to make sure you get it? I've done that before. I've called friends and and sang it into their phone <laughs> and said, "Don't erase that like that." I used to have one of those little, um, little small, little little, uh, little small tape, the mini tapes. I had that. And, I would, and what I would do is I'd do it for like about a year. I'd hum something in it, I put it away. I wouldn't even look at it, but I know I had it down. So and I'd make it, make an album at the end of the year. I'd take out maybe like ten or eleven songs or, or melodies and go like that and just have it like that.
0: Wow. Yeah. So w- this has been going really fast. you only have a couple of minutes left. But what what would you like to talk to the, all the people out there? who don't know your music, what do they need to know about you and your music and your heart and your soul when it comes to what you do? You know what it is? What I like
2: doing is I like, I like when people dance, number one. And people have a bad, it, it's got a bad stamp on it, blues music for some reason. I think jazz does that too in a lot of ways. And it's, it's like the least selling music I think is jazz, obviously. Maybe classical music these days. but But blues, what I try to do is I make it so it's, it's dancing, So in a lot of ways, like say you're a husband and wife. The husband says, let's go out and see Carrie play tonight. Well, what does he do? Blah, blah, blah. He plays guitar. Oh, I don't want to see that kind of chunk. But if she understands that we play something you could dance to and she can get up and dance, then both of them will have a great time to go. And that's why I feel I try to give that thing where I'm not, I am playing for myself. I do enjoy what I do. But then again, it's like it's. I have to make them enjoy what I'm doing at the same time. And if you can marry those two together, then it's, then it's great. We're not trying to do that.
0: Would you say it's accessible blues?
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, it's, it's like that. Yeah. It's something I think you can hear, it's familiar. That's one thing. It could be original because, I mean, I think, you know. To get an original style is one thing. When you hear Jerry Garcia, you know it's him in two seconds. When you hear so-and-so, so-and-so in two seconds. But it's like, you know, to get yourself an identifiable sound. I think on Slide, I kind of have that kind of thing going, which is really, really, you know, to me, it's a blessing. And uh, so, and, and that, that sounds it's like that. I mean, you know, it's, it's like anything else. Either you, you'll, you know, you can love it or you can hate it. But I try to get in the middle so that everybody can kind of like, you know, come to, a, you know, a conclusion that maybe they'll all like it, hopefully. In right, you know. the
0: last minute we have left,
2: you're working on a Christmas project? With Michael Falserano, yes. Okay. And you'll be playing uh, at My Father's Place? Yes, on the 28th of December, Saturday. And we're going to be, hopefully we'll have it, have it by then. Right. But even if we don't even have the album, we'll have songs from the album. That'll be great. Christmas right. songs. So if you're listening to this in the future and
0: you missed it, at least there'll be an archive of this. song. <laughs> And if not, buy your tickets now <laughs> and uh, go to kerrycarneyofficial.com. Official.com. official.com is all right. right. Yeah. And how do you spell
2: all that? Uh, it's K-E-R-Y-K-E-A-R-N-E-Y official.com.
0: All right. There you go.
2: So thank you so much for thank spending. You. This it's was great a great TV. interview. Yeah. It,
0: was, it was a lot of fun. I, I loved seeing you and hearing you. Thank and you too, I, I really thank you for the honor of you being in the fun. studio today. It's and fun. I love that little acoustic thing. Cool. All right. Richard Solomon, we will be back next week. Be safe and have a nice time.